There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I am Alan Water and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on June the 10th, 2010. Now, there's always new newcomers coming into the show and I advise you to go into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website. I always suggest too that you bookmark the other sites I have up there for future use because sometimes the com site gets overloaded, goes down or else I can't upload to because of the particular server I'm using. And if you've got these alternate sites, you can always download the latest shows. Now, all the sites you have seen listed there have the same audios for download. They all have transcripts for print up of a lot of the talks I've given over the years in English. And if you want uh, languages other than English, go into alanwattsentinel.eu. That's listed on the front page there, too. And you can find the same audios plus uh, a lot of transcripts in the different languages of Europe. And while you're at it, go into the books I have for sale. These are different books. There's, it's not the usual scholarly books with the boring uh, fake details of his story. Someone's given you a story, you know. Uh, I give you much more than that. I show you how to think in a non-linear fashion because you've been trained not to see most of the things that are out there around you and what they really are and what they really mean. You're thought to think in a straightforward line as they leave clues for you and guide you to what you think is your conclusion a predetermined conclusion, of course. And that goes through your whole schooling, in fact. It goes through um, everything you watch on television as well. That reinforces it in linear thinking, the whodunit sort of stuff. Now, it's very simple, of course. They just have massive chases and car smashes, and they get the bad guy in the end. But meanwhile, you're getting downloaded with a lot of suggestions and implants and political correctness. In other words, you get updated. So I try and show you how this is done with the books, and you should get them and find out how it's done and how you can deprogram yourself from it. Because the world is run by very clever people, people who've even dabbled with the creation of languages for people over the centuries. And yes, people actually study how to create languages, and they do it every few hundred years. And uh, they give you your computer-type language for your logic that you, you will use, and they also show you how you should use it. They give you the format, and you come to conclusions all the time. They're predetermined. Now, from the U.S. to Canada, you can purchase through PayPal for donation if you want to, or, or purchase. You can send a separate email uh, with your name, address, and the order with the PayPal donation, and I'll get it out to you. You can use a personal check to Canada, because we're all one big country now, apparently. And you can also use an international postal money order from the post office. MoneyGram is okay, and Western Union is okay too. Some people just send cash. And from Europe, same idea, and across the world, PayPal for donations or for purchasing. Separate email, remember, if you want to purchase using the PayPal. And you can use Western Union, MoneyGram, or again, cash. I think the cash eventually will stop, uh, probably in a, in a few months, the way things are going, because uh, so many of the European countries are being put through massive inflation right now. 
and the cost of living is going out of sight, which means also it's also dropping here when it's valued against the dollar. But we still go that way too. So we, might, we might catch up with them eventually. It's all the same. And remember, the ads you hear on this show go straight from the advertisers to RBN to promote this program, to, to air it, to pay for their staff, their equipment, and their bills. So it's up to you to keep me going. And it's very, very important. It also gives me more leeway, although I certainly lose out money-wise because there's big bucks if you bring on advertisers and promote them. That's how most shows uh, and hosts make their living. But as I say, there's always a catch to everything, and you're, you're kind of hand-tied at certain things that you might have to discuss. Now, there's so many things I could talk about today, but really... It's all out there in the mainstream. I'll touch on a few of them and just touch on them again to something that's more interesting that really concerns us back after this break. Hi, folks. This is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the Matrix. I could touch on the BP deal, but it really is so, it's kind of boring the way it's getting rammed out there. And the whole thing stunk from the beginning when the company that certified this particular pipeline, this drill right down to the seabed, they certified it and took off from the rig and two hours later it blew up. And it's going to be the greatest boondoggle ever for the environmentalists, which is exactly what it's planned for, I think. And... It will also up the price of everything, and big laws will come down. Plus, no doubt, it will help push the whole carbon tax issue and energy issue right to the fore, and they'll pass a whole bunch of laws. So it's awfully handy for, for, for that particular reason. And that's all I'm going to say really on it, apart from the fact that some of the top guys, including the BP chief Tony Hayward, sold shares weeks before the spill happened. I mean, that's just... Same thing happened before the towers went down. Remember the guy who, who owned them, just, just insured them a few days before, and boom, down the towers went. It's awfully handy when you've got crystal balls like that, isn't it? But uh, an article from The Telegraph talks about it, that the chief executive of BP sold £1.4 billion worth of his shares in the fuel, fuel giant weeks before the Gulf of Mexico oil spill caused its value to collapse. So I wonder why he suddenly lost confidence in that, you know. But that's just, this is the stuff that's rammed through. And as I say, there's, a, there's bigger things afoot here to come out of all of this. And I think we all know, the ones that think, uh, what that will actually be. And when you go into other things that are happening in the world, we've got the one that's Article Zero and people getting put in prison because they owe debt now, like the debtor's prison. The debtor's prison used to be quite popular up until the 1700s, 1800s, right up until the 1900s, in fact, because you're put in prison because you owe debt. And when you're in prison in those days, especially in places like the Britain, you had to pay for your keep in prison, or somebody had to, because they didn't give you the food uh, for nothing. You had to pay for it, and you had to somehow also pay off your debt while you're in prison. It's, it's ridiculous, but that's what money's all about. It's kind of ridiculous to start with, isn't it? It's a con game. And while they're doing all that too, they're really promoting uh, eugenics all over the place and uh, abortion and how wonderful it is to have the Internet to, to help with abortions. an article from the New York Times, and it's about abortion drugs given in Iowa via video link. Uh, 
The situation has played out hundreds of times from his office here. A doctor asks a woman on the computer screen before him with one final question, are you ready to take your pill? Then with a click of his mouse, a modified cash register drawer pops open in front of the woman seated next to a nurse in the clinic, perhaps 100 miles from the city, with uh, mifoprostone, uh, the medicine uh, formerly known as RU486, that is meant to end her pregnancy. Efforts to provide medical services by video conference and notion known as telemedicine are expanding into all sorts of realms. So now you know what telemedicine is really all about. Surely they'll have ones too for people who want to commit suicide and you get a little cyanide pill too, it'll pop open and because they really wanted to populate quickly now, especially people who have stopped working or, they, or they're un- disabled or they're pensioners. They don't want people being a burden on the state in these dire times. And they're getting the public already for it from a whole bunch of ways. Mind you, they've done awfully well with the food so far, with the GM food, modified food, in places like Canada, where cancers are just breaking out all over. Uh, and, um, of course, they're stumped by it, all new kinds of cancers you never saw before. But that's what modifying this kind of stuff does to you. We haven't eaten this stuff in our history of millions of years, and suddenly this stuff is all here, uh, heavily soaked in pesticide as well. And uh, you wonder why you're dying off. Never mind all the inoculations it gives you with the cancer viruses, which they admit to, and the pig viruses that are in them. And now they say that they're okay too, by the way. The recent discovery, I read that last week, pig viruses are okay. Even though they didn't know they were there initially, they suddenly decided, without even investigating them, that it's okay for you to have pig viruses inside you. So there's reasons for this. It's not stupidity. It isn't just big money. It's to... Bring down the population, folks. That's what it's about. Bringing down the population. All the big foundations are right into it, through all their charities and their aids and everything. And you're not supposed to really think about that much. You're supposed to think they're out there handing out chocolate bars to people in Africa and helping them because they love them. And nothing, of course, is further, further from the truth. Nothing at all is further from the truth. There's a great article about foundations, and this ties into what I mentioned yesterday of the incredible network of foundations that run the world, including the network of foundations that are tied in completely with the intelligence services that are not answerable to the public. They get to do things that the intelligence services can't do. They want to do, so they use these other organizations to do it for them. It's been like that for over a 100 years. That's part of the reason the philanthropies were created in the first place. And there's an excellent site uh, with good documentation, very good documentation, and you can validate it yourself by checking out the, the links he has on it. By, it's by Michael Barker, and uh, he goes, it's a three-part series he, he put up there on the, on the net, and he, he talks about the beginnings of, uh, for instance, the Bill Gates Foundation, how it started, all the organizations that are behind it, in it, the people who are involved in it and what they're really up to, and how, through their great philanthropy, mixed with uh, bringing down the population, um, they're helping the world with all their different GM food um, stuff they're dumping across the planet. I noticed, by the way, that Haiti um, is, is burning millions of tons of GM food that they were given to grow in a charitable gift. They don't want this stuff in their country. 
I'll read first, before I read this article, thought, I'll, read, I'll read an article here from a, a listener of mine that I know very well. He's got hens. He breeds hens for himself and his family. And he noticed they all stopped laying, just suddenly stopped laying. So he, he wrote to the co-op feed. That's a big company that supplies the feed. It says, and asked him if there was any GM corn in the feeds. And he told them why he was wondering, because it all stopped laying. And this is a response he got from them. And the co-ops are all across Canada. I have them in the States as well, maybe by the same name, in fact. And this is what they got back. He says, yes, there, there's most likely a genetically modified grain in the majority of our feeds. In Canada, there is no separation of non-GM feedstuffs and GM feedstuffs. I am not sure of the exact figures, but close to 50% of corn is from GM seed, and over 50% of canola and soybean are from GM seed. If you want a feed which is not genetically modified, a certified organic feed is probably your only option. We do carry a line of certified organic feed. So they know darn well what they're doing because they also have this organic feed, which will cost an awful lot more. Same in Canada, too. Anything you buy off the stores doesn't list if it's GM or not. That's the law here in Canada. Because, you see, we were the test bed for this awful stuff, this poison, long before anybody else in the world was tested with it. Our government admitted eventually when it broke out from Britain, of all places, uh, that we were the test guinea pigs for the whole world and had been eating it for 10 years without our knowledge at that time. And that's, that's now 20 years we've been on it. So they do want to bring down the population and it's really helping with sterility too. So it's doing its job and, and, bring, and killing us off faster as, as well. But philanthropy, back to philanthropy and the guys who really want to dump this stuff across the planet and Bill Gates, of course, that you think is, is a, a little whiz kid with computers, which is far from the truth. He was just brought up, special family, of course, uh, and pushed into a position. And the Gates were, well, was well named, the Gates were certainly open for him. And is completely tied in with the CIA, the NSA, and a whole bunch of other organizations worldwide. So it goes on here. It's like many of the world's richest businessmen, Bill Gates believes in a special form of democracy, otherwise known as plutocracy, that is socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. Following in the footsteps of the robber barns like John D. Rockefeller, who he works with, by the way, and Andrew Carnegie, who founded two of the America's most influential liberal foundations, that is the Rockefeller Foundation and the Carnegie Corporation, Gates, like most capitalists, relies upon the government to help regulate and protect his business interests from competition but is less keen on the idea of a government that acts to redistribute wealth to the wider populace. Dean Baker surmises this idea when he writes that Bill Gates is, after all, one of the heroes of the conservative nanny state. In the minds of such massively powerful would-be capitalists, the state is merely a tool to be harnessed for profit maximization, and they themselves, the one who have acquired their wealth by exploiting and manipulating the economic system, then take it upon their own shoulders to help relieve global inequity and inequality and escalating poverty. The modern day's white man's burden. As one might expect, the definitions of the appropriate solutions to the capitalist-driven inequality that are generated by the world's most successful capitalists neglect to seriously challenge the primary driver of global poverty, and that's their capitalism. For the most part, the incompatibility of democracy and capitalism remains anathema to all except liberal philanthropists, industriously fund all manner of solutions that help provide a much-needed 
outlet valve for, for rising resistance and descent, while still enabling business as usual, albeit with a band-aid stuck over some of the most glaring inequalities. With huge government-aided financial empires resting in the hands of a small power elite, and by the way, this is the same power elite that gave you the European Union, the NAFTA agreement, the GATT agreement for China, it's a world empire. It's their world empire. It's completely tied in with all the big names that you've known from all the other exposés over the years. It says the ability of the richest individual philanthropists to shape global society is increasing all the time, while the power of governments to influence society is being continuously undermined by many of the powerful philanthropists. Look at George Soros. He's telling governments what to do. This situation is problematic on a number of levels, least of not which is that existing theories of democratic governance find no legitimate role for liberal philanthropists acting as extra-constitutional planners. We'll go into this stuff deeper and see who's all involved with it. And it's all the big names, Madeleine Albright, all these people. Back with more after this. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix talking about big foundations and how they're all interlinked in one big web across the world into everything and into governments too and on their panels of governments that are appointed, you know, and depopulation and so all that kind of stuff like optimum trust. They're all connected through the same groups, uh, a parallel government if you wish, and again all interconnected as well with your intelligence agencies they do the things intelligence agencies can't really do openly, uh, such as going over to Africa and dump lots of drugs, supposedly for AIDS, that kill them off all the quicker, to which we all pay for over here, mind you, for the big corporations that are in league with Bill Gates and others. So it says here, for instance, in 1999, Microsoft helped found a corporate front group called Americans for Technology Leadership. Sounds nice, doesn't it? A group which decides its role as being dedicated to limiting government regulation of technology and fostering competitive market solutions to public policy issues affecting the technology industry. In 2001, Joseph Men and Edmund Sanders alleged that Americans for Technology Leadership orchestrated a nationwide campaign to create the impression of a surging grassroots movement to help defend Microsoft from monopoly charges. The founder of this front group, Jonathan Zook, also created another libertarian group in 1998 called the Association for Competitive Technology, a group which was in part sponsored by Microsoft to fight against the antitrust actions being pursued against Microsoft in the United States. Such anti-democratic campaigns waged via front groups and AstroTurf organizations, that was another one, AstroTurf they made as well, however, were just one part of Microsoft's democratic manipulations. This is because, as Greg Miller and Leslie Helm demonstrated in 1998, this was just one part of a program that Microsoft and PR giant Edelman had been planning as part of a massive media campaign designed to influence state investigators uh, by creating the appearance of a groundswell of public support for the company. None of this should be surprising because in 1995 it was also revealed how Microsoft were using consultants to generate computer analysis of reporters' articles and list industry sources to critique writers they know and, less frequently, provide investigative peeks into journalists' private lives. 
amongst the rare spade of critical articles surfacing in the late 1990s to add insult on injury, it was also shown that Microsoft had also made a $380,000 contribution to the conservative corporate-funded AstroTurf group Citizens for a Sound Economy, now known as FreedomWorks. Unfortunately, these examples only represent the tip of the iceberg for Microsoft's democracy manipulating activities as a corporate media, uh, while be, or with the corporate media, while being unable to make or able to make occasional critique inquiries into corporate misdemeanors, can hardly be relied upon to act as corporate watchdog. So they put up front groups which pretend they're corporate watchdogs, but it's really to protect themselves and what they're up to. This is like what were formerly known as the big three liberal foundations, the Carnegie Corporation, the Ford Foundation, and the Rockefeller Foundation, whom exhibited a long history of working closely with the U.S. government's Central Intelligence Agency. Microsoft also has its own ties to the shadow intelligence community. Thus, in the aforementioned AstroTurf campaign involving Americans for Technology Leadership and another group that worked alongside this coalition on Microsoft's behalf was a group called Citizens Against Government Waste. This anti-regulation group was founded in 1984 by syndicated columnist Jack Anderson and the late J. Peter Grace. However, Grace's role in creating this group is particularly noteworthy as he'd formerly chaired the AFL-CIO's American Institute for Free Labor Development, or Solidarity Center, a group that has a long history of working closely with the CIA and the National Endowment for Democracy to promote the U.S.'s imperial interests overseas. Of course, Grace, who died in 95, was not part of the Microsoft campaign, but the point here is to merely indicate the types of conservative groups that Microsoft associates with. Moreover, in 1999, it was revealed that Microsoft had direct ties to the intelligence community as special access codes for use by the U.S. National Security Agency had been secretly built into all versions of the Windows operating system. And that's true. I've read that one on the air, and I read a follow-up to it a couple of years ago on the air as well. Because they can't have competition, and it's put out there to get all your data. It's all part of the one big intelligence gathering system. These CIA connections should be expected as one of Microsoft's main clients is, after all, the Pentagon. Furthermore, Microsoft's boards of directors itself is also home to a key member of the defense establishment. As in November 2003, Charles Noski joined their board. Shortly thereafter, in December 2003, Noski joined the Northrop Grumman Corporation, which happens to be the third largest arms manufacturer in the world. As her corporate vice president, a position he retained until March 2005, he also served on their board of directors during these years. Another Microsoft director, James Cash Jr., also served on the board, the board of General Electric, yet another major military contractor, while Noski also serves as a director of the Rockefeller-linked investment banking giant Morgan Stanley. And fellow Microsoft board member Dina Dublin is a former chief financial officer for the Rockefeller's financial services company, J.P. Morgan Chase. See, they're all intertwined as one. Finally, last but not least, the CEO of Microsoft, Stephen Ballmer, who has served in this position since 2000, has links to another controversial group called the Jewish National Fund, the JNF. Here he serves on their World Chairman's Council, a council that's composed of a select group of people who have demonstrated an enduring commitment to Israel and JNF by donating over $1 million. This group was formed first in 1901 and is widely considered to be an environmental organization which, as a website notes, has planted over 240 million trees, built over 180 dams and reservoirs, 
and developed over 250,000 acres of land. But there's more about this company when I come back, but what they really also did. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix. Just going through some of the stuff on Bill Gates, the great philanthropist who wants to sterilize the world by making us all healthy and giving mosquitoes to to uh, pass on this new inoculation he's got planned and all that kind of stuff. And, and talking about philanthropists in general as well, how they're all intertwined, these big foundations, these, these characters who form a parallel government across the world are all intertwined with each other and the intelligence services across the world. And it's their responsibility, they see it, to bring the populations down to a manageable level as they bring in a socialist-type system that we all work underneath a uh, sort of communistic style that we live in, in collectivism, while they live as the elite in a new, a new feudal system above us, you see. And getting back to the, the CEO of Microsoft, Stephen Ballmer, who uh, also uh, has links to the Jewish National Fund, and how they plant trees across Palestine, all the way since 1901. I guess there's a tree for every Palestinian, maybe. That's maybe how they do it. So it says here... Um, Stanley Chesley, the JNF's president, this Jewish National Fund's president, Stanley Chesley, also serves an executive committee of the American-Israel Republic Affairs Committee. Indeed, uh, although throughout the Jewish world the JNF is seen as a highly responsible ecological agency, in actual fact the JNF was a principal Zionist tool for the colonization of Palestine. In a recent interview, Alan Pappy put it simply, he says, JNF is simply a colonialist agency of ethnic cleansing. This is a very controversial link for a corporation that created the, the Gates Foundation. However, having provided a critical overview of the corporation that allowed Bill Gates' philanthropic work to thrive, the following part of this article will introduce some of the people and projects that have been supported by the various Gates Foundations. But I'll jump from page one to page three. Uh, and it's really interesting as well because when you go into it, you, you, into what they're actually up to, as I say, you, you find out that they want to feed the world and bring the population down. It's a clash of heads here somehow. And it says here, in 2003, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was strongly criticized by international charities, farmers groups and academics as a result of a $25 million grant given to genetically modified research to help develop vitamin and protein-enriched seeds for the world's poor. So these guys really care, they really care about the poor. This money supported research being undertaken by two groups, the International Center for Tropical Agriculture and the International Food Policy Research Institute, two groups which played an integral role in the first Ford and Rockefeller Foundation-funded so-called Green Revolution. Both of these organizations are also part of the Consultative Group on International Agricultural Research, a group of global public institutes that is widely accused of being a creature of its two major funders, the U.S. and the World Bank. However, although linked to the World Bank, what most critical commentators fail to comment on is the fact that CGIAR, 
was formed as a result of a series of private conferences held at the Rockefeller Foundation's conference center in Bellagio, Italy, and its work has been strongly supported by all manner of liberal foundations. Thus, while a good case we made that Gates Foundation has been highly influenced by other liberal foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation, John V. Darrell, 2003, points out that there are also reasons to believe that the Gates food agenda is now being shaped by U.S. corporate and government interests. Now, tie that in with Kissinger's bill that he put through, and I've got it on the website somewhere, I'll maybe find it tonight and put it back up there, where he said that overpopulation was the greatest state to the nation, and then they listed all the third world countries that have to bring down, but they also meant you at home as well, by the way. It's a world order, and the peasant in America is of no value, more value than the peasant in China. In fact, maybe the peasant in China is of more value to them right now, because they're internationalists who run you. It says, this is because in regard to the support for CGIAR, the Gates Foundation chose to partner with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and U.S. Aid. So they're right into your U.S. Department of Agriculture as well, this great philanthropic GM foundation. Two of the most active pro-GM organizations in the world by Brian Toker in his 2004 book, Gene Traders, Biotechnology, World Trade and the Globalization of Hunger provides a critical overview of the U.S. involvements in GM developments. And by the way, you're getting that GM rubbish whether you like it or not. That's the mandate. They're going to give it to you whether you like it or not. Given this accusation of corporate influence, it is poignant to reflect on the large number of ties that the Gates Foundation current leadership has to various biotechnology ventures. Thus, Melinda Gates has served on the board of directors of Drugstore.com, the president of the Gates Foundation's global health programs. Tachi Yamada formerly acted as chairman of research and development at the, at the global drug company, oh guess who, GlaxoSmithKline, up until 2006. The president of the Gates Foundation Global Development Program, Sylvia Burwell, is a director of the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa. Their chief financial officer, Alexander Friedman, was the founder and president of Accelerated Clinical, a biotechnology services company dedicated to accelerating the clinical trial process for biotechnology films. It means ramming it through. Ramming it through, that's what it means. The Gates Foundation Managing Director of Public Policy, Jeffrey Lamb, formerly held several senior development positions at the World Bank. Oh, goodness me. And is the chair of the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative. Well, finally, Jack Farris, who formerly served as the Gates Foundation's Director of Community Strategies, has since February 2005 been the president of the corporate lobby group, the Washington Biotechnology and Biomedical Association. They got it all. They own it all, folks. And all these foundations and all these organizations here put their their hand out straight into newspapers for you to lap up thinking, oh, they're really independent of each other. It says, in addition, given the key role played by liberal philanthropy, most notably the Rockefeller Foundation, in promoting the initial Green Revolution, it's noteworthy that many important people at the Gates Foundation are directly connected to the Rockefeller Philanthropies. Tachi Yamada is a former trustee of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, the two chairs for the Gates Foundation's advisory panels for their U.S. program and their global development program both serve as Rockefeller Foundation trustees. These are Anne Fudge and Rajat Gupta, respectively, while Henry Cisneros, a former Rockefeller Foundation trustee, sits in the Gates Foundation U.S. program's advisory panel. 
Part two of this article has already demonstrated the Gates philanthropies, like many liberal foundations, have an affinity for funding population control programs. So the affirmation connections to both the Rockefeller philanthropies and to the biotechnology industry cast an ominous shadow, shadow over the Gates Foundation's activities in this area. To fully understand this statement, one must look critically at the history of the first Green Revolution, as the whole idea of Green Revolution is problematic, because although the chief public rationale for it was supposedly humanitarianism, a good case may be made that the logic undergirding this revolution was Malthusian, not humanitarianism. For further details, he's got the links here to other information about this. Moreover, as critical scholars like Eric Ross have pointed out, the Green Revolution should be considered to be an integral part of the constellation of strategies, including limited and carefully managed land reform, counterinsurgency, CIA-backed coups, and international birth control programs that aim to ensure the security of the U.S. interests. That was the part that uh, Kissinger was involved in, too. This little-haired clique of the Green Revolution is supported by the work of other writers such as Susan George and Vandana Shiva, who have demonstrated that so-called revolutionary changes promoted by the Green Revolution actually increased inequality and in some cases even hunger itself. Former Rockefeller Foundation President George Harar has been credited as being as the architect of the Foundation's agricultural programs beginning in Mexico during the 1940s. I was in large part responsible for the so-called Green Revolution. Harar also played a key role in the funding of the Affirmation Consultative Group on International Agricultural Research. Thus, it is fitting to note that Eric Ross wrote in 1996 that the threat of Malthusian crisis justified the central premise of the Green Revolution, that if there was not enough land to go around, peasant agriculture could not yield sufficient increases in food. In the process, it sidestepped the important question of whether land was truly scarce or simply just unequally Distributed. It also can conceal that another agenda, uh, Jai George Harar, observed in 75 that agriculture is a business and to be successful must be managed in a business-like fashion. You must always so remember too, folks, that, uh, and we've all forgotten this in this day and age, the public have forgotten this, food is used as a weapon. It's a primary weapon and you're all going to find that out shortly with rationing. Back to the article, it says, Thus he was acknowledging that the Green Revolution was not just about producing more food, but helping to create a new global food system committed to the costly industrialization of agricultural production. Throughout much of the work, Malthusian logic, hand-in-hand with the new technologies of the Green Revolution, helped to put land reform on hold. Bearing this history in mind, it's consistent but alarming nonetheless that the president of the Gates Foundation Global Development Program, Sylvia Burwell, is a director of a group called the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa. They really love Africa, of course, as they kill them off. An alliance that was founded in 2006 by the Rockefeller and Gates Foundations. Using similar humanitarian rhetoric to that initially used to promote the original Green Revolution, the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, whose offices are based in Kenya, Kenya, well, what a coincidence, and Ghana describes itself as dynamic African-led partnership working across the African continent to help millions of small-scale farmers and their families lift themselves out of poverty and hunger. Yet in a manner eerily reminiscent of critiques of the initial Green Revolution in 2006, Food First observed that because this new philanthropic effort ignores, misinterprets and misrepresents the harsh lessons of the first Green Revolution's multiple failures, it will likely worsen the problem it is supposedly trying to address. 
Other than Burwell, another Gates Foundation rep uh, serves on the Alliance's board of directors as Rashiv Shah, who is Deputy Director for Policy and Finance of Global Health at the Foundation. Furthermore, other Rockefeller-linked directors of the Alliance include Rockefeller Foundation trustees Strive Masiya Iwa and Mamfela Ramfel, who also happens to be a director of the world's second biggest mining company, Anglo-American. <laughs> Nadja Shmavonian, who is Vice President for Foundation Initiatives at Rockefeller Foundation and had formerly worked for 12 years at the Affirmation Pew Charitable Trust's Monte Jones, who began his career in 1975 at the Rockefeller-funded West Africa Rice Development Association. By the way, they came out with that yellow rice and actually had an article out a couple of years ago that says, from the UN, they'd found this particular rice helps to bring down the sperm count in the males so it could be used for... For, uh, for that purpose, to, for bringing down the population. That was a, a mainstream. Rockefeller, court to say Rockefeller. And Moise Menza, who's a member of the 2020 Vision International Advisory Committee for the International Food Policy Research Institute, a Rockefeller-funded group that was involved with promoting the original Green Revolution. Like many of the other groups involved in the Alliance, the latter group is a member of the Affirmation Consultative Group on International Agricultural Research. Now, all these organizations sound so official, you all think they're part of governments. And we read these names all the time, and it goes through our head, we don't even remember them. But we're always impressed, thinking, oh, good, you know, they're doing something. They're all tied together for Malthusian purposes. Since having now elaborated the links between biotech companies, population control research, and the new green revolution, it's critical to acknowledge that in large part of the modern-day environmental movement grew out of the highly successful population control movement in the late 60s. And so environmental organizations are also well enmeshed in this web of philanthropic causes and democracy manipulators. These links are best represented through the person of the Walter Falcon. From 79 until 1983, Falcon chaired the Board of Trustees of the Agriculture Development Council, a group that was established in 53 by the influential population control activist John D. Rockefeller III. I'm losing my voice here. And when this group merged with two other Rockefeller-related agriculture programs to form what is now known as Winrock International, Falcon continued to serve on their Board of Trustees. In 87, Falcon also became a trustee of the International Rice Research Institute and thereafter went on to serve as the chair of the board. The Falcon Environmental Connection, however, comes through this presence on the board of trustees from 2001 to 2007 of the Centre for International Forestry, a CGIAR member organisation whose mission suggests that they are committed to conserving forests and improving the livelihoods of people in the tropics. In 2006, this group had a budget of just over $14 million, of which just over 9% came from the World Bank. So they're totally tied up with the World Bank and the UN. And the World Bank is their largest single donor, while in some year, uh, years the Ford Foundation provided them with just under $0.4 million in restricted funds. <clears throat> Considering these connections, it seems appropriate then, six, then since 2006, C4's Director General has been Francis Seymour, an individual who's a member of the elite planning group, the Council on Foreign Relations. Now, prior uh, to that, heading C4 had been responsible for providing leadership for the World Resources Institute's engagement with international financial institutions like the World Bank. Earlier still, Francis had spent five years working in Indonesia, 
with the Ford Foundation and had also worked on USAID-funded agroforestry projects in the Philippines. In addition, another notable trustee of C4 is Eugene Terry, who was formerly Director General of the West Africa Rice Development Association for nine years before going on to work at the World Bank. See earlier for details of Monty Jones' link to this world. There's all the links on here. So Bank, CGR, Rockefeller Funded Group. Terry is also chair of another CGR member organization called the World Agroforestry Center that was founded in 78 and obtains funding from the World Bank Ford Rockefeller USAID World Resources Institute Funding Consortium. Moreover, Terry is now the implementing director of the African Agricultural Technology Foundation, a Nairobi-based group that was formed in 2002 with Rockefeller and USAID funding to lobby for greater uptake of GM crops in Africa. Although not advertised on their website, the foundation receives support from the four of the world's largest agricultural companies, Monsanto, Syngenta, Dow AgroSciences and DuPont. AATC Chair Jennifer Thompson, who published the aptly named book Genes for Africa 2002, also sits on the board of GM, the Disagility Modified Lobby Group, Africa Bio. Furthermore, William Nyber, who is Vice President of Crop Genetics Research and Development at DuPont Services and uh, serves on the Design Advisory Committee of AATF and on Seagare's Private Sector Committee. Other than via uh, Eugene Terry, the Centre for International Forestry can be connected to agribusiness giant Syngenta through C4 trustee Andrew Bennett, who's a former executive director, now just board member of the Syngenta Foundation for Sustainable Agriculture. Terry joins Bennett on the Syngenta Foundation Board of Members, while the foundation is now headed by Marco Ferroni, who's a former World Bank advisor and a former executive at the Inter-American Development Bank. Another notable director of the Syngenta Foundation is the president and CEO of Novartis Foundation for Sustainable Development, Claus Lessinger. This is particularly interesting because the Novartis Foundation joins the Gates Foundation and World Bank Ford USAID types in funding the work of a key population control group, the Population Reference Bureau. Now, here's music coming in, and I'll continue with this when I come back from these messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and we're cutting through the matrix reading from a series of articles from Michael Barker who really did his homework in universities to bring all this to light, really gives the links to all the different organizations that are completely all tied together, like a big ball of wool really, you have to unmesh it all to try and find out who's who, but they're all tied with each other with interlocking directorships and CEOs and all the rest of it taking over the whole world's food supply and uh, really the societies of the world are under their jurisdictions. They are, par- they are a parallel government. And from page two, I'll just rush through this part here because it's important. You'll know these names. Uh, talk about the, the Gates Foundation. It says, formed in 94 by Bill Gates and his wife Melinda Gates with an initial stock gift of about $94 million. The Wilter H. Gates Foundation was managed as the name of the foundation suggests by Bill Gates' father, William H. Gates Sr. 
Presently acting as the co-chairman of the Gates Foundation, Gates Sr. has independently of his son had a successful career establishing one of Seattle's leading law firms, Preston Gates & Ellis, which in 2007 became K&L Gates, whose work is closely tied to Bill Gates' corporate and philanthropic network. Gates Sr. is also a director of the food giant Costco, where he sits on the board of directors alongside Charles Munger, the former vice president of Berkshire Hathaway Inc., in 2003, Gates Sr. confounded the initial initiative for global development, or co-founded it, which is a national network of business leaders that ostensibly champion effective solutions to global poverty. This is really sustainability they're talking about here, in their fashion. The dubious level of commitment to this group has... Uh, to truly solving global poverty can perhaps be best ascertained by the fact that the two co-chairs of initiatives, uh, leaderships, councillor are the two former Secretary of States, Madeleine Albright and Colin Powell. Albright, Powell and Gates Sr. also serve as honorary chairs of another arguably misnamed democracy promoting project called the World Justice Project, which happens to obtain financial backing from two key weapons manufacturers, Boeing and General Electric. This project also receives support from Microsoft and the Gates Foundation, amongst others. And Madeleine Albright, too, remember, is also on the board, the top board now of NATO. And she wants to starve Iran like she had uh, Iraq starved before it. Do you understand? These are, these are anything but philanthropic organizations. This is weaponization of food on one side by people who obviously are all tied together by some other means and made very popular and very famous with an organization that opens all the doors for them right up into all governments and beyond governments. And they go in with their charities to other countries, like Africa, and give them African-sounding names, African development funds for this and that and the other, and it's not African at all. And then they manage to get all their stuff uh, spread across the fields across Africa, which of course contaminates all the original grains they had there. Then you're at the mercy of their of purchasing from them every year the same seed to grow your stuff. You can't keep your own because they have a killer gene in it, a terminator gene, to ensure you can't grow a second crop from the initial seed that you bought from them. But then you can go to the World Bank, you see, and borrow more money to buy the seed. But then you've got to buy all the, the Roundup Ready and all the other stuff that goes with the special chemicals from the big uh, chemical companies that you must use on these particular plants. And you've got to borrow money for that too. They've got to borrow the money when it all fails, and by God, is it all failing across the world? The reports are coming in. Philanthropies? I don't think so. I think they're definitely Malthusian. From Hamish, myself, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to you. Your God or your gods go with you.